Hello and welcome to Crew Shaken, a Warhammer 40,000 wargaming podcast, brought to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the United States. I'm your host, Tim. Thank you for joining me. Here in Episode 3, we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 2017 Las Vegas Open, the LVO. I have two guests joining me in the studio, Alex and TJ, both of whom are fixtures on the Philadelphia area 40k scene. I hope TJ will be able to bring us the insider's perspective on the LVO, seeing as how he was a volunteer there. And I hope Alex will give us a great look at what it was like to be a competitor at the highest levels at the LVO. Should be a great conversation. I'm looking forward to it. TJ, welcome to Shaken. Good to be here. Alex, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for this invite, and I'm looking forward to talk about our favorite hobby. Let's dive right in. Hobby progress. TJ. Yes, sir. What have you been up to in the hobby? Alpha Legion is the most recent edition. Yeah. What have you been doing to paint your Alpha Legion that particularly alfarious color? So I found an ink at um, just a local art store that I mix with Ironbreaker, similar to what they're doing in the tutorial with their tints. But I felt like their tints weren't particularly strong. So I'm using a much stronger ink, so I have to use less of it. I think I use... It's three drops of green, or three drops of the uh, the blue ink, dark mm. dark blue ink. So, and it gives it that kind of uh, blue gray metallic, yeah, sweet. Yeah. So, how many points of thirty k Alpha Legion do you have built? I have one marine sitting on the ship. Oh, and I guess my Spartan's probably about half built. Um, I haven't glued it the rest of the way together. I have that. I have Dynat. I have. A librarian in Terminator armor, and then I have the Betrayal at Kalth box. So. Gotcha. So you started with the Betrayal at Kalth box. Yeah. I, I picked that up, and I haven't opened it. I was actually going to open it tonight and then Skype in and be building it, but I decided I didn't want a hobby, so came here. Sweet. Alex, how about yeah. you? What's the news? What's the hobby news? So there's a lot going on lately with the hobby. Um, i got to say I'm deep into 40K, and uh, the 30K bug... Got me with the Burning of Prospero box that came out. Those sweet MK3 Marines. Um, that was pretty nasty. And it, it was the MK3 armor over the Betrayal at Calf armor that got you? Yes and no. I, I liked the aesthetic more of the MK4 with the um, Betrayal of Calf box. But Imperial Fists from the background, which is the army I'm also playing, comes more represented through the MK3, a little bit like Iron Warriors or... Iron Hands also, it's more their aesthetic, their armor. Um, so when it came out, I thought, all right, now I have a mix where I can make the veterans with MK4. And I would say most of the troops and breacher squads without spending all that money on Forge World right. with, a, with a good amount of MK3 armors. Right. Um, and then also both boxes combined had the Tartarus Terminator armor, which comes with the Burning of Prospero, and the Calf box comes with the the previous one so you, you also get a good mix there and yeah. the characters and everything was very nice so that's that's how i got into it basically what what i've been working on lately was uh for lbo um i needed to work quite a bit on my space marine armies i am playing a battle company uh rules wise white scars as most people might do for competitive events but I paint them in an orange scheme that is a successor chapter of the Imperial Fists. They're called the Swords of Thorn. And the idea behind the orange was, or the idea behind the yellow in general with the Imperial Fists is that they do not want a color where they can blend in with the environment. They want to be seen, 
They want to be defined, stay on the fortress wall and be like, here we are and we are not going to move. And I thought that orange captured that spirit pretty well. Yes. Um, it's, it's a bright color. Wherever you have them, you see them. And also at tournaments, it's a color people walk by and they're like, oh, that's unusual. Are yeah. you playing Blood Angels? <clears throat> no. <laughs> it's, they, they want the enemy to know. Yeah, it's exa- the sons of Dorne that are about to whoop them. <laughs> uh, exactly. I, I want them to remember that orange. Um, so I, I've been working a little bit on them. I, I had them painted since a while, but two to three colors minimum, I would say. Uh, and mostly on the infantry, I, I needed to do a lot of highlights. So I've been working on this for LVO. I started adding more highlights, blending the orange all together, doing the whites and the blues. And then I also tried to do start doing some freehands, but time ran out, so I couldn't finish all that that I wanted to finish, but I, I got a good bunch in. I also added some characters to my army. Yeah. Um, I made an astropath um, out of the Age of Sigma or Warmer Fantasy necromancer. Ooh. I cut off the hand that he had, that he's holding a skull, and chased, uh, or changed that for a pointing hand. And then I cut off the head, drilled a little bit around to make some space there and used uh, Sisters of Silence head to go with the fluff that the Sisters of Silence, obviously, which I also had included in my battle company then, they capture psychers all across, but even they need to use Astropath. So I wanted to have the Astropath in my army to be looking sort of similar to the Sisters of Silence because he's all the time around them and he needs to support them with four by the fluff of 40k. And 30k is for an astropath quite a pain. Um, so I wanted him to look a little bit similar to the sisters. That's That was the idea behind using a similar head. And then also painted a Cataphrady Terminator captain, which I converted a bit so that his legs will be a little bit more in a walking position than this white standing. Yeah, they're a little static out of the box. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So I changed that and um, gave him a, a chain fist and a power fist. I wanted him to look a little bit like Magnus Kalgar. It's a character that I really loved, the model, and that basically was my latest painting for, for that. And on the other hand, I'm always working on a 30k Imperial Fist Army since that Burning of Prospero box came out. I have a 3,000 points infantry list that I had been slowly putting together, doing all the bases first. I always start with the base, so mm. that's for me one of the biggest parts of the hobby, mm. is I do 150 bases, um, for which I use all different kinds of bits, um, cork, wood, metal, stones... Um, all different kind of material that I find. Many mm-hmm. times I just walk through a street and find some trash and pick it up. My wife looks at me and she's like, <laughs> what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I can make bases out of this. It's amazing. <laughs> and the nice thing with her is actually that at some point she sometimes comes back with a handful of trash and she's like, here for your bases. <laughs> you, don't, uh, you don't often hear people starting with the base. Yeah, I would say it's since two, three years that I um, did that. I figured that you start with the base and then you glue the legs to the base or you hold them at least to it you can play more with the position of the body Ah. so sometimes when my base is a little bit inclined it looks like a hill you can put the marine or you take the legs where the right knee is then a little bit inclined Hmm. it looks like he's staying on it and trying to find a good hold and then you can put the upper body in a position that he's still looking straight what i never liked is when you put them together on a straight base right then you put them on a base that is slightly going in an angle down or up then the whole marine looks like he's like, all right, I'm going to fall over. Hmm. So by putting them on kind of an uneven base, if you will, you give them kind of an automatic dynamic pose because you're kind of taking gravity into account. Exactly, huh. yes. So that's basically when I started doing that. And also um, for some miniatures, I try to blend them with their bases together. So some of them might be putting a hand on the rocks or trying to be like leaning against it. Um, so it gives it a little more atmosphere, and that's basically when I started doing first the bases, 
And it's also a step that requires me always a lot of, all right, you got to get through this. So I start with it. <laughs> it's like the hardest part first. And then you're like, all right, now we, we start putting all the legs on. Right. And from there, I always start building them. my characters first, my, my sergeants. Um, I, I use the legs with the base that I like the most. And from there, I build the rest of the army. Do you, do you put the legs on the bases separate from the torso and everything to yes. position them? Oh, okay. Yes, yes. So first, I put the base down. They're all done. Let them dry. Then I take the 100 legs that I had. I glued them on the base. Are those legs primed and base-coated or no? No. Okay. Um, in this case, actually... I primed, I actually did prime them. It's not always the case, but in this case I did because I wanted to have a difference in the color later. So I primed the legs already with the Mournfang Brown Spray from GW. Mm -hmm. um, it's a highly recommended paint. Um, I almost use it more often than black already hmm. uh, because even if you let it shine through in the recesses, it gives a very natural dirt. Yeah. So yeah. for anything that is an armor or anything that you would like to have some dirt in it, even if you don't paint all the way, then let's say if you paint with a red or with a blue on it, if you have that brown in the, in the niches and the corners, it looks really nice. Um, so I really got to say it's a nice color to start off with. So I primed my legs with that color. And um, now the upper bodies I primed with slight white. And now I'm going to glue them together, which I actually did the other day. And now I will prime them slightly with a yellow. And so then you have directly the blend from the brown between the legs. Hopefully it will stay. I have no idea how it's going to look. <laughs> I don't have an airbrush, so it's just with spray cans. And then it will build my way up from there. So huh. that was basically the idea with my 30K Imperial Fist that I have there. I know despite my best efforts, I can never seem to have everything ready until the night before an event. Did you find yourself scrambling to get stuff painted for LVO, or were you ready like weeks in advance? I got to say that I painted on the flight from Philadelphia <laughs> to Las Vegas. So actually, I made friends at the airport because I got two hours early, like everybody gets to their flights. I had a wet palette with me. I had one of my old pots of paints. Um, I brought it in, filled it with water, and then basically painted waiting for the boarding to start and obviously i wasn't the only one flying to vegas from philadelphia where some people who had layovers and they were like dude i mean we have been painting till yesterday night my wash is still drying but to bring a wet pellet <laughs> to the airport <laughs> that that that's a thing to do that's kind of badass yeah yeah so I, I painted there and then basically i when we started boarding i got in the plane took my seat i had very nice people sitting next to me talked with them a little bit we took off and as soon as the airplane had a sort of stable position took my paints out got some quite some questions and weird looks at myself and um, needed to explain it, but uh, yeah, the, the nice thing was actually that the woman sitting next to me, her son, played Warhammer, so she knew it. She was like, is that Warhammer? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, how do you know? And she's cool. like, oh yeah, my son, he played 10 years ago, but then computer games came and he stopped playing it. Mm. But yeah, he, I, I, we spent quite some money on that. And I was like, yeah, I guess that's how my mom felt too when I started. <laughs> so did you have everything done by the time you landed or did it continue into... No, it continued <laughs> oh, till 4 a.m. So oh, I, no. I, by the time I landed, I had all the orange done, which I wanted to achieve, and all the white. Like, all right, that's at least what I wanted to get done. But the astropath was completely black. I had only primed him literally the night before. I based him. So in the morning when I packed him for the airport for the flight, he would, the base was still drying. Um, and then in the plane, I even took him out, put him on the side where you actually have those like little turbines, the oh, air yeah, yeah. turbines sure, in the ceiling. Sure. Yep. And I pointed them a little bit in front of me. I don't like when it hit me, but I put it so right there will go on the astropath so right, that the quickly. glue would dry quicker. <laughs> 
And then when I got to the hotel, got to see a little bit Vegas, walked a little bit around, then I was like, gotta go back, I gotta paint that astropath. You were painting up until the morning of day one of competition. I painted till 3 a.m., slept three hours, woke up, painted for about an hour and a half. I think I woke up and I yeah. was like, I, did, I didn't got to finish this. And TJ was like, come on, dude, you did so much, you should finish it now. And I was like, all right, all right, all right. I sat down to almost 8 when we finally managed to go down to breakfast. But I, by that time, I was done. So that is dedication. That nothing of organized. Dedication. It was more getting it painted last second. Awesome. Awesome. We'll take a short break and be right back. As I mentioned in our introduction, this is kind of a special episode of Crew Shaken in that this is not an evergreen episode. This is an episode that's talking about a very specific topic, LVO 2017. TJ, you were the first to arrive on the scene. Walk us through your first encounters with LVO 2017. You arrived as a volunteer. Yeah, so I had gone down because I, I didn't really, you know, I haven't traveled much, so I didn't want to, you know, pack a whole army and do the whole airport thing. And and at the time when I had offered to volunteer, I, you know, was unemployed, so I didn't really know where I was going to be, and I'd pretty much been like, hey, if you can find me a floor to sleep on, I'll come help out, and I'll figure out how to do the plane ticket. So we get there, and it's just... I think it's the main convention center was where the GT was held. I don't remember the name because there's the main convention center and the grand ballroom. This we is at the Bally's, yes? Yes, this was at Bally's. Right. So we started in the main convention center probably about 9 o'clock in the morning, I think, on Thursday. When we got there, it was just tables with tablecloths. Um, nothing had really been done. The trucks had just started arriving because um, they have storage somewhere nearby where they keep all the stuff for the LVO. So And these were frontline gaming trucks with all their stuff for terrain and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So cool. it was big, big box trucks and, yep. and they uh they you know, it they had they they had it down. It was it was very organized to set up something so huge. There was there was a system, you know, once we got everything unloaded, we kind of started breaking it down even further, you know, this terrain goes over here, this, you know, and just kind of uh, staging it and then once we got everything staged a group went down and placed which fat mat would go where and then a fat mat came in it, it was very efficient i want to say we were pretty much done setting up the gt which was like 250 tables That's i want to say tables. a lot of tables i want to say we finished about with that part by like five or six o'clock and then we had to go set up the main ballroom for you know, everything. And I was fading pretty quick. So a lot of other people kind of did the, the main ballroom where they had all the other events, but it was huge. It was just the the amount of space and the sheer size of the event was incredible. How many volunteers were there that first day? I don't really know because a lot of people were just, you know, who had come down early were just kind of helping out. Yeah. It's, you know, it's such a community thing that, you know, people were just like, hey, I'm here to register and I'm gonna help you set up some tables and then go meet my wife and go get food or right, something right, so right. there was definitely the calm before the storm setting up because you could tell that like even as people were coming in to like they were doing pre-registration and stuff they were just so excited the thing that probably amazed me the most was just how much terrain they actually had on each table and it was all their itc frontline gaming terrain mostly Those there kits, was there was yeah. a mix of some custom stuff they'd done oh, and yeah. some gw terrain i really like the itc terrain like yeah. alex can we jump over to you for a second you were there to play in the gt correct yes. um how did you find the terrain on the tables 
Um, good. There's always a, a big a discussion about terrain in tournaments, mostly since 7th edition now. Um, some tournaments went so far that they have a standard layout for every table repeating over and over. Oh. Um, to mention, for example, in Nova on the East Coast here, uh, they have two triangle-shaped line-of-sight blockers in the center of every table, two ruins, and then four like scrambled craters or something that would give a five-up cover. And I, I think that's almost a bit hardcore uh, going just for one type. I think terrain should be part of, all right, the role for which side are you going to play on should have a matter. And that was probably a bit more the case in LVO because not every table was the same. Right. Um, but there, again, there were some tables that didn't have enough line-of-sight blockers, which I think in this edition are really important that you have at least one or two good line-of-sight blockers because there's some armies that if they set up and go first, they can just shoot you down in turn one. Um, so from this competitive point of view, I got to say I like that the tables were very diverse, very different. Um, the orientation of some of the tables was close to other tournaments, so they would have two bigger line-of-sight blockers in the middle and then some smaller stuff around. Uh, but there were also some tables, and I played on actually one of those tables where you had almost no line-of-sight blocker, mm. which can really hurt. And yeah. um, So I, I think diversity is good. Um, I want to say that I didn't put that table together. <laughs> <laughs> From 250 tables, that's probably true, yeah. So that was the only thing I would notice about the tables. Overall, it was enough terrain per table. The only thing that really missed or lacked a little bit was that some tables didn't have buildings or mountain chains or anything that could be played as a good line of side blocker to get some cover against about all those very strong tau and the first turn or Eldar. So, so you like it when that roll to go first has an effect, but it doesn't totally, it doesn't decide the fate of the game turn one necessarily. Correct. I mean, there's a lot of other things that also play into this, but if you have a table where you have the chance to position maybe your more important units a little bit behind, use some units that you have for sacrificing so that they take up the, the shoots or position yourself so that enemies cannot deep strike or drop pods about all. I mean, deep strike is not the big thing in the current meta, mm -hmm. but drop pods probably are um, about all with the sky hammer formation right now or with battle companies um, that you have enough space that you can position yourself, you can be in a good angle and also avoiding that elder that are very fast with the 12-inch movement that they get almost across the board, plus then the 36-inch range shooting with so many strange six shots, still can get around. So if it's just like a small wall somewhere in the middle that maybe, yeah, from the starting point blocks, but then once they move to the sides, they can still see you and be like, hey, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> you are, pop, 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 right. right. So now you can throw the towel on the tail and like, all right, good game, let's, let's play again. Did you get the sense from your fellow competitors that were there at the GT that the terrain was good, but there should have been more line of sight blocking? I think everybody would agree that the terrain was outstanding, not good. The terrain looked amazing. Absolutely nothing to say against this. The playability of the terrain was also good. I always like when you're forest where you can remove the trees um, before people need to put their tanks, being like, my land raider is floating over these trees. You know, right. he's right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's always a big plus, which yeah. LVO definitely did. Uh, everything was very movable. I saw on some of the games they were broadcasting on Twitch, I saw somebody take off the top half of a building to put their guys underneath in cover and yeah. then put it back on top. Yeah, they even, I think a lot of the pieces, they come off the base and they also come off the level. So you might have a two to three story. Each story will come off. That's smart. Yeah. And, and it's very easy to 
pick up and, and take off. And right. and they have a pretty strict formula for the tables, but I think there were a couple that might, you know, have had, you know, slightly looser interpretations of what, you know, line of sight blocking might be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we got towards the end of the tables, you know, there was some, like, shuffling back and forth, like, okay, well, this table needs a line of sight. So I think it kind of comes down to, I think some of those things were, like, opinion based where when the people were putting it together they they considered like yeah this is a line of sight blocker but mm-hmm. it's like an oil drill type thing sure. so it's like yeah that that blocks line of sight but cuz you know we were all just kind of helping out so different people kind of have but there's a pretty strict formula right. um you know you kind of you know when we were started setting up everyone was kind of like okay this is what you need on every table and you have to because I guess everybody's just setting up according to their local meta wherever they're from, right? Yeah. So they're going to kind of define things differently based on how they're used to playing. Maybe, yes. Yeah. yeah. Let's zoom back out to that first day when you get there, TJ, to help set up. What was the energy like amongst uh, the fellow volunteers? LVO is now the largest – it's the largest event in North America for 40K. I think almost in the world, yeah. Is it almost, is in the yeah, world, yeah. I think so, yeah. So w- with LVO being as large as, as it is, did everybody kind of feel the gravity of that amongst the volunteers? Did you realize you were a part of something really special? It honestly felt like we were setting up for a game at the local store. It, it, you know, it was just laid back and everybody was just having fun and we were trying to get all these tables set up. So there was no smoke machine near the Forge World booth that was like... No, no. no. Um, there was no Warlord Titan standing outside, like, beckoning you in and thanking no. you for your service? No, it was just, you know, right. we went and we all sat Senators. around a table and then everyone... They didn't even invite the girls. You just kind of got there. Yeah, we just kind of hung out. It was fun. Like, I... Setting up an event that size probably shouldn't, you know, feel fun. But and, and I was definitely tired. It was the most physical activity I've had since I graduated college. <laughs> I'm going to the gym probably next week as a, uh, you know, little life crisis about that. So, Alex, walk us through your initial impressions. You first walk in there. You're at one of the largest wargaming events in the world. How did it feel? I got to say it was a cultural shock at first. Um, I've played tournaments quite over the, the globe. Um, I'm myself from Germany, so I've been playing there in Spain a little bit, so in all different kind of places. And Las Vegas, obviously, it's you first get immersed in Vegas before right. you reach tournaments. So the first impression of myself was landing at an airport that has slot machines right. and one-armed <laughs> bandits right at the airport. And you're like, ooh, all right, welcome to Fabulous Las yeah. Vegas. You, you know what you're getting into right away when you get off the plane, yeah? There's no talking around the hot coffee. It's straight going for it. So that, that, that was the start. And, I mean, seeing people even right there at the airport already, like, beam, 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 beam. I was like, ooh, okay, well, I'm ready for this. Yeah. Got to the airport and um, out of the airport, I wanted to say, and to the hotel. And then you walk in and the first thing you hear is literally five different songs from ten loudspeakers all around you. And you hear this, bing, 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 boom, 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 boom. <laughs> From everywhere. And you're like, sensory overload, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I felt like, oh, Slanish will be happy here. <laughs> there will be in, in this is dreamland. For sure. I, I can attest to that. <laughs> yeah. So that was my first impression. Um, and then when, once I got to the back where it was a little bit more calm, the conference part of the hotel was like, oh, I feel happy here. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of snuck him back to see the whole thing. Told everybody he was going to win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brought so, shame to my good name. That there you felt like, all right, no, this is where you, what I came for. And then you walk through that door and you see all those tables and preparation. And first of all, I would say amazing job to the people who are organizing this. Always a big thumbs up. So what many people do not realize for these kind of tournaments, 
is that the organization is done mostly in their free time. I personally, I love these events so much. They are for me a big part of the hobby. And I always feel bad sometimes when you see these people that have invested weeks just to paint all this terrain. If you see 250 tables with painted terrain to a really good tabletop standard, you got to be thinking, holy moly, who was behind this? So that's a lot of work. That, yeah. That's a lot of work that you got to yeah. put in there. I mean, well, that's dedication. Yeah, because they're also, you know, they're, they do a podcast. They're running a store. They're, you know. Yeah, ITC and The ITC. Yeah, a, you know, they're working with the guys that are doing the Best Coast Pairings app. You yeah. know, they're busy. And I think... I think they pretty much they leave Vegas and start planning for the next one. Oh, I'm sure you would have to. Something that scale does take, you know, takes a serious investment in time to put together. Exactly. Yeah. So that that was your first impression when you walk in there and you're like, wow, these people make this for us, for the gamers to actually have this good time. And you see everything set up. You see those tables in line. And it's it's this pre-moment before all the people walk in. And you can already visualize it, how there's going to be a thousand people walking through these lines, rolling dice, having fun, drinking beer, making friends, what this whole hobby is about, which that's the reason why I'm playing this since 14 years now. It was really when you, when you walked in there, I was just staying there and with TJ and he walked ahead and I was just smiling and I love it. So it, it was great. The ITC and especially the LVO, it, it's done so much for the hobby. You can see it just by the, you know, the people who are there. Like everybody from that does 40K YouTube was there. I met like all of the people that I watch, you know, to to learn about 40K and, yeah. you know, keep me interested in the hobby. And you yeah. just, you would randomly end up with 40K people. Like we had set out to go do something the one evening and we ended up just eating dinner with a, you know, a bunch of different people that do 40k youtube and stuff uh, yeah. the feel no pain guys were great it, it was it was Some awesome. crazy stories we got to hear there too Ooh. yeah <laughs> having what stays in vegas <laughs> what happens in vegas stays in vegas yeah that's one of the big upsides of having such a big event is that it has this gravity across a hobby or across an activity i've been to vegas for other conferences and everybody who's even interested in that topic is drawn by that gravity to be around you know their people you know, their peers and the people that they Absolutely, watch, the people yes. they learn from, the people they read, all that kind of stuff. So, Alex, from a Meta standpoint, this is the managing the Meta section, after all. Let's start with your list. You were playing in the GT. What did you bring? What was your thinking behind the list? That's, uh, we'll take a little bit. So, to introduce <laughs> myself a little bit for those who don't know me, I won two years in a row, um, best of all, at uh, Nova Open. So, I'm not the best player out there, that's for sure, but... I'm, I think I'm always in the top 10, sort of. I brought, and I've been playing since a long time, with this Army of Space Marine Battle Company, playing it with White Scar Chapter Tactics. Uh, for those who don't know it, the Battle Company benefits from two very big buffs combined with a third one from the White Scars. The first one, which is the one that most controversial, maybe, is that you get free transports for your units, which ends up meaning that you get about 500 points extra in-game which you'd get a tax that you need to take regular Space Marines, which otherwise you almost don't see at tournaments. Um, the second point is that you get tactical doctrines, um, assault doctrines and devastoid doctrines once per game, which basically means that your whole army can get twin-linked weapons, which many times doesn't seem that good, but when it comes to certain armies that you play against, and I will come to that later, it can be devastating when you use it at the right moment. And the third point is then the White Scars, their chapter tactics actually allow them to hit and run out of combat, which is a very powerful ability, is that you can choose when you want to stay and when do you want to get out of a combat to be able to shoot a unit again. 
you can fail it, yes, um, but the chances are one out of three that you fail and got to fight those fights that you don't want maybe. And then also combined with they can run faster than other armies. So you get a D6 run, but White Scars, if the unit is completely made out of White Scars, can re-roll. So if you have that unlucky one or two, you can go for it and try to get a higher roll, which mm. is very important sometimes in the last turns to get those extra one or two inches that you might be missing to actually get in range with an objective. But you always have to take the second roll, correct? You always got to have yes. the second roll. Yes. Okay. So that's basically where I started off. My battle companies are based out of one captain and Cataphredi armor. His idea is to make one of my devastator units slow and purposeful, which basically means they can move and shoot at full ballistic skill, even with heavy weapons. That confers to the unit. He also came with a chain fist and be able to, if needed, to charge knight or so. Um, he also had the Hunter's A, which is a very special item for the White Scars. It gives him and his unit ignore cover. Then um, my second HQ choice for the battle company is a chaplain. And uh, he just comes with an Auspex, which is also a very handy item. He can use it in the shooting phase. One unit in 12 inch gets minus one cover safe. And it doesn't need to be the same unit you're shooting at with this unit. So it's always combined him with the Cataphredi captain so that they can shoot with the Andres A1 unit and outspec something else for the rest of your army that's going to shoot at. Then my one of my favorite choices are Ironclad Dreadnoughts. Um, the 3013 front and side armor makes them very resilient against many armies that have a lot of strength 6 shooting. If you have them in cover or when you activate smoke with that 5-up cover, they can take quite some punishment before they actually go down. And with their six attacks on the charge with AP1 or as how I play him with the chain fist and then assault grenades, he can really charge something that you want to take out and he will succeed in most cases. Mm. And then the rest of my battle company is pretty straightforward. Six tactical squads with diverse weapons. Two of them have melter, combi melter. One of them has a graph cannon and a rhino. And one of them has nothing. It's actually just five bolter and the other unit comes also just with a regular melt gun. Then two assault squads with two flamers, one in a razorback, one in a drop pod. And to finish off, I have another two devastator squads. One of them has a graph cannon and a multi-melter and a rhino. Those two rhinos that I have, they scout up before pregame, giving the graph cannons a potential 36-inch range that they can shoot at in turn one. And then the second unit actually comes in a drop pod together with the Cataphredi Terminator. And two graph cannons plus two multi-melter give you that option that when they come down with ignore cover, with rerolls, they can take out whatever you want to shoot, unless it's very buffed already. Mm -hmm. But it's a very powerful first alpha strike. If you go first, you come down, you can usually kill what you want to shoot at. Mm -hmm. um, as an auxiliary formation, I take the 10th um, task force. The company task force is three units of scouts. Two of them I play with Landspeeder Storms, which is one of my hidden gems. I would say. It's my one of my secrets that many people ignore. Why? They have an 18-inch range, big blast strength 4, blinding grenade launcher... The blinding is a very underplayed rule, maybe, that if you get it off, enemies at the end of the current shooting phase need to take a blinding test, which is an initiative test. If they fail, meaning if they roll higher than the initiative, they get blinded and pass to have weapons can ballistic skill one for their turn, I mean, till your shooting phases again, which against Necron with a cross-the-board initiative two and even demons, Screamer stars are only initiative three, which many people do not know. Mm -hmm. As Creamers and even Heralds are initial three, that means on a 50% chance they can fail it. Putting those Heralds down to Ballistic Skill 1 is huge. Yeah. Because then the only power that they can do that really affects you are Beams um, and Novas. But all the Witchfire powers that actually require to hit roll, 
hit you on sixes. Blinding can be pretty powerful in those combinations. So I use those lens beaters, keeping them in the bag, and then trying to blind something when I need it. And you have two of them, so you can always try to shoot two units. Or with the big blast, you might even get two units at once if they're close together. So, so you take them not really as just a blindness delivery vehicle almost. It's not so much the damage dealt by the blast weapon. It's the fact that that weapon blinds. Absolutely, yes. Hmm. Yes, yes. It has won me, maybe not the game, but it put me many times in a good position. Huh. Then in a crucial moment, about all with Screamer Stars, for example, I put it on a unit maybe close, even if they were invisible, when invisible is in full play. If they didn't pay attention and they had another unit close, I will put it on the other unit. I get one of them. They will fail their um, initiative test, be blinded, and then next turn I will be almost protected against them right. because they could only use beams and novas, hmm. which gives you a big, big advantage. And Krons, Necrons, uh, with their cross-the-board initiative 2, and then going down to Wem skill, Ballistic skill 1 hurts everybody and about all Necron armies, even Wraiths. Right. Um, Having race charging you, hitting you on fives, hmm. is a big difference. And then having space marines that can hit and run out of the combat means usually he will charge you, he will not wipe out your unit. You will survive, you can hit and run out of the combat, and you get a full turn shooting again. So that's one of the, the big combinations I use with, with my Lenspeeder Storms um, that many people do not consider. And also then this 12-inch bubble that they create where enemy units scatter 46. That is, again, something that can be used correctly, very powerful, uh, many times when you go first with Space Marines, enemy armies might want to stay in reserves with their more expensive unit, trying to or walk on or deep strike. Mm -hmm. And for the walk on, you can always have enough units then in their deployment zone that they will have a hard time walking on. And if they want a deep strike, you can have your land speeders positioned in the middle of the board so that if they want a deep strike close, they scatter 46, making it very tricky for them to go. And, and, and how big is that bubble around the land speeders? 12 inches. Oh, wow. So it's a, a cross... 24 diameter yeah. with two lens speeders a big area that you can cover and also they get uh, from the formation they get shroud as long as they do not move which means shroud plus thing is a two-up cover so those lens speeders are also very resilient as long as you don't move them and enemies don't have no cover i think the land speeder storms have kind of become your signature i heard a couple people i don't know if you heard saying oh yeah you're you're darn uh land speeder storms with your blind and yeah. you don't see a lot of people bringing them you really don't uh no i i that's what i definitely wanted to say before it's maybe the a little bit of this, this the magic phase in my space marine army without really having psychers to finish off my list which was the hardest part i gotta say i managed almost to have three weeks before lvo that i was thinking about my last almost 200 points and how i wanted to spend them uh, with the current meta in mind, I really was going for and back, and what do I want to take, what do I not want to take, and I ended up taking Five Sisters of Silence, hmm. um, because I was pretty sure I would see quite some psychic presence over there. And um, I also ended up then taking an Astropath, which I talked before about, that I painted the night before. He's a 25 model, Psyker level 1, and if he manages to get a Psychic Power off, you get to reroll your reserves in your next turn, which is pretty powerful, huh. considering that it just says rerolled, so right. you can reroll successful or unsuccessful rolls. So in a game where you want to maybe stay off the board a little bit longer to then choose from where you want to come, it can be pretty good for that. It worked out just a few times during the tournament, actually, because if you play a very psychic-intensive army, which quite of them are right now, yeah. it doesn't really work against some other armies. I played Tauder, I played another Space Marine army that do not come then with other psychers. Psycho level 1 for 25 points gives you a psychic scream. 
that he can even get. And in one army, I killed, you know, five warp spiders with it. Right. Um, for a 25 points model, that was, you got his points back for the whole tournament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. <laughs> Basically. So that was the, the last unit I fitted in. And the idea behind it, and also having four independent characters, which I forgot to mention, was, and many people out there might be like, how did he play the battle company without Khan? Yes, Khan was, I took a um, command choice. So I played two. Demi companies, one auxiliary and a command choice to play Khan in that command choice. And that way I had Khan, a captain, Cataphreddy armor, a chaplain, and that 25 points, astropath. And the idea behind was what I said before, is that the characters could join the devastators to make a little death star coming down and shooting something and have enough punch in close combat to hit something in return if they will get charged. Or the other option, which I math hammered before was okay if i take those four characters and put them inside my sisters of silence if i play against a demon list or a very psychic intensive list from five models now i go to nine making that 12 inch bubble that they have much larger right and giving those sisters the close combat strength that they need if they get charged by a demon prince i mean they might not get affected by a demon prince charging in still wipes and out in close combat but with those four characters of which one has an ap3 and on a six instant death weapon which is can um, can makes enemies really think twice. Do I actually want to go in there? Right. And I learned my lesson for next big tournament. I will definitely play the Cataphreddy Lord also with an Eternal Warrior. So he will get the Shield Eternal just to really make that unit a tank unit or him a tank in that unit. So by whatever they get charged, he can just step ahead with a three wounds, three up in wound level save, real ones, two up armor save, take a couple of punches. Super tough. Super yeah. tough. Hmm. And have you thought about how you're going to work that in? Are you going to drop like the the specs, so then you can move the hunter's eye or the hunter's eye is going to pass over to the chaplain um so he's going to have an specs and the hunter's eye basically then and oh, okay the cataphreddy terminator captain will then have still a chain fist and i think it goes very handy with the shield eternal i, I will need to cut some points here and there it might be some weapon drops eventually I, I work even something on the scouts i play them with a lot of combi weapons and upgrades so I could cut 30 points, 40 points almost there, which is already the Shield Eternal. So you and said you struggled with those last 200 points, and you wound up with the Sisters of Silence and the Astropath. What was second place? What were you also considering with those last 200 points? Uh, the captain, the Cataphreddy captain. Um, my, my basic idea from which I started is I would play a battle company. I need Khan. Um, the extra scout that he gets to your army is a huge advantage that really makes, I think, battle scar... Let's call him Battle Scar. <laughs> One of the most competitive armies for Space Marine Battle Company. Because that scout allows you to redeploy after deployment completely. It gives you the option to outflank, which is huge. Many people do not think about how big outflanking Razorbacks can be because you can come in tank shocking. And I have many games against Elder where Elder, they want to be far away from you. And usually, if you come down deep striking, you, you control the center of the board. And Elder, their game is usually to be on the borders, on the edge, going around you, shooting you from there. But they are across the board, leadership eight, not considering warp spiders. We leave these completely out here right now. But jet bikes are leadership eight. If you come in from the side of the board, going 12 in tank shocking Elder, and then they run 3d6, you have good chances to actually make them run off the board. And I did this a couple of times. It works pretty successfully. Mm. And it's hard for the elder player sometimes to conjure because if he doesn't want to get tank shot on the edges, he needs to be in the center of the board. And that's where you want to have him. With so many units, you might get those charges. And once you charge jet bikes, they're not that right. painful anymore. Then they're three attack strength three. Mm -hmm. So that really gives you that ability to, to have that 
that flexibility to be across the board together with five draw pots that I play, five draw pots and seven tanks, is that you can control the yeah. board, the positioning, where you want to be, where do you want to have your units. And in that case, you can almost corral your opponent into that center space or into exactly. that easily contained space. Where you have your yeah. drop pots then. So mm-hmm. you really have, you, I can play my drop pots to go for the center. I have my tanks to uh, cover those flanks. So Kana is really important. So uh, he was already fixed. And then basically where my idea for the rest of these 200 points that I was talking about is I really like those um, ironclad dreadnoughts that mm. I talked previously before. So the option was ironclad dreadnought or another captain and Freddy armor. Because I really don't like to play bare bones battle company, which some people do, and then throw in a knight or throw in a bark star, throwing in some other stuff that really makes the battle company being just the objective secured, sitting on objectives, but losing all the ability to actually usually kill something. I like to play my battle company with a lot of weapon upgrades so that I can kill things with the battle company. And uh, the option here was then really to take that cataphratic captain with a devastator squad in draw pod so that I can pick when they come in which unit do I want to kill. And that's something very important. And in some games you really have a unit that you got to get rid of because you know this can be a game changer. And I played before, I played Devers- uh, the devastator squads on Reynos before. Uh, or on bikes, I tried that too, and there I had the feeling that it wasn't flexible enough. The enemy had the option to get his vulnerable units out of range, away, moving them, killing me first. And with this alpha strike option that coming down out of a drop pod and then being able to shoot at full ballistic skill with full weapon range on those craft cannons is a big game changer. So that's why I decided in the end then to go with that hmm. cataphratic captain that gives that good save, two-up armor save, chain fist, and the ability to actually come out of the drop pod and shoot was was very big for me. So that was my 200 points plus the sisters plus the astropath. The flexibility that the astropath gives you of choosing to deploy or not to deploy almost with his extra role kind of lets you pick what you bring in to defend. Because in the ITC missions, you're kind of redirected every turn at different stuff. So your opponent might be might need this one turn, but then they're heading in a very different direction for the next turn. So with that astropath, it gives you the chance to put something right in front of that objective or next to that objective, and you can kind of define when that happens in the game. Did you find that helpful? Uh, yes, very much. I mean, that, that was the whole reason why I took that astropath. Is it gives me the control of using my army more, depending on how I want to play my army. It gives me that option to hold it back, play more passive, maybe because that's what we're coming later to with the lists I faced were very psychic heavy. So during those games, when I would play Magnus, for example, I would just have my sisters with all my characters on the board trying to hold everything back so I couldn't get those very early kills. And then in turn three or hopefully four, just spam onto the board, go on those objectives with objectives secured, kill then even all the summoned chariots that Magnus might get down and then actually sit with enough units of objectives so that he doesn't get a chance to actually get you off all those objectives. Right. And that the astropath might help against a Magnus list with too many psychic dice. It's not the best thing. I mean, I gotta say, I was also lucky that I got it off once. <laughs> I got six dice, rolled them off, got five successes. He didn't dispel it. But against other lists, against Elder, for example, it is a good, it is a good game controller that it gives you for those. Um, TJ, let's zoom out for a second. You had mentioned earlier the Best Coast Pairings app. I guess people all over the event were using it, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I think it was required for the most part for doing registration and scoring, so... Mm-hmm. Um, I played around with it. I talked to the guys that did. It's it's excellent. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think they designed it in such a way that you know it can be used for other tournaments too. I mean, because the the biggest misconception I think with the ITC is that you know if you're a part of the ITC, you always run these um, 
you know, you always have to follow their FAQ. But really, I mean, you'd have to check the exact guidelines. I, I think it's like player score and something else that you really need to keep track of. You can use your own rules because they didn't want to, you know, they wanted to include everyone without really locking anyone out saying you have to follow the ITC rules. It's like, no, you, you're still in charge of your event. So, you know, to do that and then use Best Coast Pairings app, it seems great. I think playing ITC rules still leaves a lot of latitude for TOs to kind of run their events how they want to run their events. Well, and I think what the Best Coast Pairing app does is it kind of cuts down on, on the whining because the scores are very transparent. I think some, some of the painting stuff, Alex, might not have been conveyed very well via the app. But I think a lot of like what you scored this turn, your battle points, all of that was very you know right there. And yeah. and from a you know someone who wasn't participating, I could go to the app and track you know how Alex was doing, how you know other players were doing, and yeah. see it right there. And I could also look at the list. Yes, this was my first time using it just to watch how everybody was doing that was there, and it was cool that you could see the photographs that everyone was required to take of their lists. Correct, Next yes. to their player profile, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think they had pretty good uptime on the app, which, you know, I am a software developer for a living. So, you know, to see that it really didn't miss a beat mm. while, you know, I think right when initial start of the very first event, they had some slowdown. And I think during the last top, during the top eight, because so many people were hitting the server at the same time to see the top eight lists. There was a little slowdown, but I want to say they said it only lasted about 15 minutes of slowdown, which is really good from a performance standpoint. Yeah. Especially, I think this might have been the first year they used it in its current iteration. Gotcha. So it was it was an impressive piece of tech. Alex, I want to ask you about high points and low points throughout all the games. But two things I wanted to ask you first before we get into how the games went. The Sisters of Silence, I haven't played against them. Can you walk us through how they work on the table, what their stat line is, etc.? Sure. Uh, their stat line is basically Space Marine stat line with Strength Toughness 3. Uh, the great swords that they use gives them Strength 4 and AP 2 in close combat, so they can hit pretty hard. Is that at initiative? Yeah, that's at initiative. Ooh, and they're nice. initiative 5. Oh. So they are oh, higher initiative nice. than most yeah. units. So they come with two attack space, web skill 4, and basically means when they charge, they have at least 15 attacks. Hitting a force means... Seven, eight hits and wounding um, with strength four might not be the best, but even if you go against T6 or so, which I actually did in one game, I got a charge off against a Riptide. You get one, two, sixes there, and then they only have a five removal save, so they can do some damage with that. But the big reason why you actually take them is that enemy psychers within 12 inches get minus three to leadership, they don't generate warp charge, and they cannot get affected by psychic powers. That basically means that with five models, having an inch and a half base, two inch between the miniatures, you can have a bubble without even adding the four characters I have that is almost 24 in diameter, let's say going one direction, and then to the other direction, you have almost 30 something, 36 to 38, um, in which no psychic power, no psychers can venture, and they turn off blessings. Meaning, if you move with your 12 inch, plus you're running in your shooting phase, intro the area or the control when enemy unit has a blessing, they turn off any blessings. It's the same way how the Colexus worked before. Uh, the Colexus is 140 points compared to the 15 points per model for the sisters, so a squad of five is 75 points. Um, he has infiltrated the Sisters of Silence, 
do not. So they're a little bit more in your back, mm -hmm. I would say, of your board. But they have the option that independent characters can join them, right. which I think is the big advantage above the Colexus. Is even so, the Colexus can only get um, snap fired at. You can only get hit on sixes and fives in close combat. Um, they have this advantage that you can add characters. You have a little bit bigger bubble, and you cannot get lucky shot with a one strength eight because they're that, more. That, that's a huge null zone, kind of walking around Back, the board. Yeah, yeah. It is. and you're foot slogging them, correct? Uh, no, but with Battle Company, I always said one Razorback where the Marines will just jump out turn one, they will jump in and then will drive forward or I would footstock them, yeah. Right. Okay. But right. with having enough Rhinos, there was always a unit of Marines that got told to get uh, out of the way and have the, the sisters then using their transport, their ride, their horse, being <laughs> like, yeah, here we go. And did you find them effective on the table? How did it, how did it work for you? Did it go as planned? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, that would already need to go into a little bit of my games, how they went, yeah, and if you want to start yeah. talking about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I played uh, six games. First game was against uh, Magnus and um, Fate Weaver and uh, Lord of Change. So first game was straight. They, they got right up there to the alley. That's why they took them. Uh, first game, you're always a little bit nervous, and I got to say that was also cost me a lot in that game. Because from when we started, we changed lists, talked, and I know the guy very well. His name is Brett Hester. We played already two times before. Mm. Um, and he's also a very good player. So it was kind of rough that out of 500 people, you play another top player there. Right. And um, right after the first roll, I had understood that he said, I go first. So I started deploying. And he was deploying sort of at the same time, but he only has four miniatures to deploy. So I was like, maybe he just wants to see where he can fit them. So you get good cover, whatever. And then I had completely deployed my army. And I was like, all right, uh, I have this, this, and this, and this, and this. I will do my infiltrate. And he's like, yeah, okay, go ahead. I'm deployed. And I'm like, okay, I'm put my deployment, my, my infiltrator stone, whatever. And then he's like, now, then I said, all right, uh, good luck. And you can roll for season. He's like, no, I go first. And I was like, wait, I thought I was going first. And I'm like, no, no. So I already had screwed up quite a bit my mm. deployment there. And I didn't did what I thought before, what I wanted to do, put all my characters and the sisters, but I had them left in a drop pod to actually make my deep strike tactic with them, which then completely screwed that sister's character tactic up. Hmm. So during that game, they were not as effective. They were still very good because there was a good building we called hide them in without any unit getting line of sights on them, and it was right next to my objective. I placed it right there, so they could make a null zone around an objective, basically, and that worked very well. That objective was defended till the very end of the game. So did you just write that off as a misunderstanding and just get right down to the play? or did I didn't want it to get too disgusting about it. I yeah. wrote it off as a misunderstanding. Um, I didn't want it to discuss it too long, also because we know that our game will take quite a bit of time, and right. I wanted to go over this whole deployment again. And as I said, first round, you're a bit nervous. Myself, too. It's, for me, it's always I play competitively from big event to big event only. Um, so I was like, all right, we'll have my make the best out of it. Mm -hmm. It's we're here for fun. I didn't want it to. I, I don't like when people start calling judges and get too much interest. Yeah, like, especially right. the deployment of the first game. You don't want to be that guy. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I was like, all right, let's take it. I, I can take this. I still have chances, sure. which is hard. Going second against Magnus, having deployed, thinking you're going first, it was a big hit. Right. Um, but then the, the scout gives you that extra that I could shuffle my army enough again that I could get some stuff out of the way. Um, but yeah, I lost that game then because, and that was, I was really pissed and I should have maybe insisted on more is when we came to the point, we had agreed before that we would play intro our lunch break already. And when the announcement came, 10 minutes dies down, this game had really taken some time. It was the first time that Brett also played with a um, psychic intensive list. He usually plays mm -hmm. Space Wolves and other lists. 
Um, so his turns were taking really long. Yeah. I usually finish all my games with Battle Company. I mean, I always finished them. I never had a game that was quite early. But then when they came to the point where it was 10 minutes dice down, I was like, all right, you need that turn. Take it if you want. I was playing bottom. He was playing top. And he started, and I was like, I've got to do 5-5 five, five or so, so I can at least score, right? And he took his turn, and the judge came by, and he was like, guys, all right, score right now. And I couldn't score my turn five. Uh. So he basically scored his Maelstrom and a Tesserary during this fifth turn, which then put him ahead of Maelstrom while I was having primary or the secondary in that case then. So we ended up 4-4 in that, and he had Tesseraries. I didn't, which turned that if I, if, even if I wouldn't have time to move, I didn't need it to. I already had my everything where I needed, and he couldn't have destroyed it all. I would have just need to say, all right, need a score, put a point on my army list, and I would have won by one point itself, losing by one. So that was really rough. Yeah not going out of the first game after that big deployment thing and then losing only because they don't let you score your turn five. I was, yeah, I, I should have insisted more there, but I again, I don't like to fight about that kind of thing. Sure. So I let it go and I was like, all right, I will enjoy my tournament. And yeah. there's always the chance that you can still go for best of all if I max out all my other games plus a good painting score. And I was like, okay, I take it from the bottom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. How was it going against Magnus? Uh, I ignore him. Mm-hmm. With my army, it's really, I, I don't have much to kill Magnus. I play Graf, can not hurt him. And for the rest, he's T7, so I really don't focus on him. I, I killed the rest of his army, basically. Even, um, well, Fady I also ignored, but the Lord of Change, who landed to try to get actually on my Sister of Silence and close, I killed. Um, and everything he summoned was killed by my army with the deployment and management, then coming over the flanks and the drop pods. I got dead off good enough. Um, so yeah, I just ignore Magnus. But at the end of the game, I still had sort of half of my army left, I will say, um, or enough to sit on the objective, on the crucial objectives for end scoring. And Magnus just couldn't kill them all, and sure. he will land. But he's not objective secured. He cannot summon objective secured stuff. So if you have enough units sitting on the objectives, then that's basically how I win in those games. With it just, it, it just becomes games. a staying a matter of staying uh, staying alive. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, basically cool. what it was. Which then actually came handy that the Sis of Silence were hidden in that building next to my objective. Right. Um, because Magnus couldn't get too close too early for me to actually be able to defend that objective, yes. Uh, TJ, as you were milling around, did you see a lot of Magnus models around? There were quite a few. There were more than, you know, I kind of expected. I haven't had a lot of time to keep up on that stuff, so seeing... Uh, Almost every demon list had a Magnus there. And, huh. uh, so, yeah, I mean, we can look at probably up, look up in the best cost pairing, but I played Magnus twice yeah. um, in my sixth game, so I know that there so were the more So the good, there were a lot of Magnus there? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Your next game after that, game two went better. Game two went much better. I played Tauter. Um, uh, sorry, no, I played Demons again my second game. This time played Weaver and Belacor, which is also pretty nasty. Makes together with a um, Herald's formation now that gives you extra warp shots per Herald and a Screamer star. So again, a lot of psychic dices here. I did exactly what I wanted to do. I put all my characters in the sisters. I walked them out the board. He didn't have any other option than to land with his demons, try to charge in, uh, which I then killed his demons pretty much in close combat without any buffs. They fell to the captain i gotta say i made two lucky rolls with my cataphratic captain i rolled a four and one are immunable safe and then a one which he can re-roll and got a four out of it so fingers crossed for that <laughs> <laughs> the emperor protects yeah, yeah. otherwise that combat might have ended differently <laughs> and then the second even got slain by khan i got a six um to wound with his five attacks on the charge reel before the chaplain so that's how I got the demons then, and the rest was just cleaning up the board once the demon lords were gone. So, yeah, the sisters, again, really won me that game because of that option that they could not get affected. He had no other choice than really to run almost in. 
um, or to summon enough stuff for which I have my battle company around that has that killing power. So yeah, the sisters did very well. Did you find yourself getting a little bit more relaxed with the second game too? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. First game is always a nightmare. First game is when you come with your adrenaline high, you don't want to screw it up, and that's when you screw it up. Um, even so, if you know your army, that's probably one of the most important things. If you play 40k, you got to know how your army works. Many people, they copy-paste lists from the internet. They think, oh, this will perform. But they don't know that nuance, that little extra that it takes to play that army well. Um, just to say an example, because I played it actually on this tournament, Nick Nanavati is another Magnus player. He always has been playing demons. He knows demons very well. And I played with a guy that had almost a copy-paste list from him. And by turn four, I had him almost tabled. And he was like, oh, well, yeah, whatever, you're lucky. And no, I didn't roll even very lucky in that game. But for example, the the thing that um, Nick with his list does is the good thing with flying monster creatures is you can go close to the board, use your psychic phase to destroy, and then in the movement phase, flat on another 2d6. And if that brings you off the board, you are safe. So what he... What the other guy did, he needed to spend a lot of dice on buffing his demon princes to actually make them more resilient so I wouldn't kill them. But then he didn't have the dice to actually kill my units. Nick has those 28 warp charges during his turn that he can use to shoot all of your units with witch fire powers and doesn't need to use any of those dice, maybe one or two to get some buffs off. And then he flies off the board and you're like, oh... What just happened? <laughs> what just happened? Where were the demons? And yeah. then he plays an Agus defense line with a comms relay where he has 20 little brimstone horse sitting there pressing the button come back come back come back and that's how he gets them back on board and how he can rinse repeat rinse repeat kill and fly off the board be protected and that is exactly that little nuance that people many times do not understand they play copy paste list which makes the game and what i think many people complain about less fun for other people because other people bring fun lists and a nice list against a copy paste list is still a hard matchup mm-hmm. i would all of both don't know the game very well um but they will not manage to get to top tables, which I don't see many times where people then still try to doing it right. because they complain about the 40K isn't fun, but then they bring these kinds of lists. But they will not manage to get to the top because they don't understand the list. They don't know how it works. I, I worked with a guy who would often say, uh, it's the pilot, not the plane, that gets you to Cleveland. Yeah. You know, meaning it, the, the, right, the right instrument in the wrong hands is still, it's not going to perform. Yeah. It's, you still have a better plan. You're so humiliated might have an edge for victory but to get that extra what you need to finish that is actually your experience with your i like the fact that you used the word nuance there yes exactly so that was um, basically my my second game and from here my matches were uh, straightforward i had a lot of repetitive matches third game i played Tauder, very known also on the internet it's a riptide formation three riptides with early overwatch interception um, a worth knight, my first game was then against a sketch knight. He has the monofilament templates, mm. a lot of elder jet bikes and characters to control reserves and some warp spiders. That game went pretty well for me. Um, I used my alpha strike tactic with my characters now instead with the sisters in the drop pod to calm down, shoot him. I played also my fourth game against a mirror list almost. He had exactly the same three riptides, wrath knight. Bikes. The only difference was he brought a Colexus instead of a unit of bikes, and some other points here and there saved. So again, there was um, I used the same tactic. I had first turn in this time actually, so he didn't deploy his units. When my Landspeeder Storms came very handy, I had exactly what I said before. He didn't want it to walk on because it was hammer and anvil, and he knew I have so many stuff that I can just completely block off his deployment, so he cannot walk on. So he would be automatically destroyed. So he needed to go for the deep strike. 
which then having those land speeder storms in the middle of the board, he just scattered. And right. One got off the board, displaced, I put him where I wanted, the other one got destroyed even. So I, I really had the edge there also right. for those land speeder storms. Thumbs up to my friends there. Uh, <laughs> game five was then against another white scar. So I had literally played at this point Demon, Demons, Elder, well, Tau Elder, Tau Elder against white scar. So my own army sort of, but he doesn't play battle company. He plays a little more smaller battle company plus some characters. It makes it very resonant. That again, um, he took maybe the mistake. I think his basic mistake was he wanted to go first, and what he forgot is that white scars are so flexible that when he deployed, he saw it suddenly during the deployment that I was keeping my stuff out of his graph range, and then he knew that during our now scout phase, if he scouts in, I scout out, mm -hmm. and if he scouts away, I scout in. Because we roll off to see who scouts first and we scout unit by unit. But my infiltrators, my land speeder storms, again, gave me that extra bubble where he couldn't scout in. But I could push up if I wanted right, to. Right, right, right. And at the same time, he was a little bit more close combat orientated. So I had more shooting. I had the edge and shooting. So he needed to come in, which he then also did. He came close with his cannon bike squad, which then during turn one, I kept everything at 25 inch from his graph cannon. So he couldn't shoot me during turn one. And I had 2,000 points almost to shoot his graph and his bike star sort of that he had and killed a turn one and from there it was a very strong uphill battle for him because then i could move in get all his stuff my drop pod started to take out his rhinos with the stuff inside and um that's basically how that game went it was all downhill from there it yeah. was all downhill <laughs> for him from there and i played him it's a great guy patrick um if you hear this patrick thumbs up for you great guy <laughs> one of my favorite people to play against and then game six i played against uh, i played nick um we have a little rivalry going between us we played quite at some big events already And uh, he also brought Magnus, that's this list I taught before, Magnus, three Demon Princes, Brimstone Horse, and an Aegis Defense line. Uh, he went first, so he had that edge. And then he came in, shot some stuff, didn't do too much in his turn one. And here's now where I said before, this little rerolls can be so handy. As I came in with my drop pod with my graph cannons. And if you use Devastator Doctrines, it means that all your Devastator units get twin-linked. Mm. Which means with Graph, it has so many shots that if you hit on sixes and you reroll, you have a good chance that you get enough sixes that you know that you're going to wound on three rolls, three rolls, three, if you yeah. fail, that you can ground those Demon Princes. Yeah. And that's what I did. I came down my turn one. I killed one of the Demon Princes, which already took some warp charges off, took some of his killing power. I went, obviously, for the one that had the best buff. So I took the one that has the best psychic powers, which was a big hit for him. And then during turn three, I was very lucky because one of the Demon Princes grounded himself. And um, he got Perils of the Warp and grounded himself, which that was then already a big, big disadvantage for him because I obviously then also killed that Demon Prince right. straight away. Rest of my dropouts, everything that cool went for him. And from that point, he only really had Magnus and one Demon Prince that, again, I could always snap fire with enough stuff at him to get that third Demon Prince eventually down. And Magnus, uh, he landed and then killed everything in close combat. And that's where I also learned I need to take that truly turn on my captain because if he would have had it, he would have been able to tank Magnus for a couple of rounds. Magnus comes at base strength eight, mm -hmm. so he instant kill captains or any space marine character. So that's basically what happened with my captain then. But if I would have had that, I would have three of them one real ones. Magnus, I would have a much harder match to try to kill him. You would have kept him busier for longer. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that gives you that little edge to control the board. Sure. So overall, the things that I took worked out pretty well. The Sisters of Silence performed great. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got to say that I also played against three demon lists for what I exactly took them. Uh, my little drop pod with the Catafreddy Lord that had that option to all join the Sisters or the... Uh, drop pod did also very well and then 
the Landspeeder Storms. And as I said, they helped me out in those two games. One was the deployment game against that other white scar, and the other one was that little oh, you want a scatter <laughs> game against Zelder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, that was. And, and what was what was the final result? How did you do? Seventeenth uh, overall. I won five games, and out of well, I only lost my first one. I maxed a lot of the other games also, so that's how I came in. Then seventeenth. Seventeenth. Great. Congratulations. Thank you. Cool. We'll take a quick break and be right back. Orbital Upload, Tips and Tricks, since this is an LVO-specific episode. TJ, Tips and Tricks, LVO, from your perspective, give me three things that you took away from the experience. Um, I need to go to the gym, because I'm not as strong as I think I am, and moving all that terrain about killed me. I think I ate a bottle of Aleve the time the whole time I was there, probably. So it was, phys- it was physically demanding? Yes, huh. yes. The setup. Um, it probably shouldn't have been, so... Um, you can remedy that. Yep, some time yep. in the gym will remedy that. Uh-huh. Yep, so um, <laughs> none of mine were particularly lessons directly related to LVO. Probably shouldn't drink so much if I'm going to get up at 9 in the morning. Always a good rule. And probably should have checked my flight, my outgoing flight from Las Vegas to make sure that the uh, the airport didn't move it back a month without telling me. Oh, what happened? When I had gotten my ticket for the round trip, they had charged me for it, but they'd never ticketed me. Oh. So instead of saying, hey, we didn't ticket you, they just moved it back to March 6th. Oh. And, you know, seven days in Vegas was more than enough. And so you would still be there. <laughs> a month in Las Vegas was about, sounded about torture yeah. at the end of it. So, Alex, how about you? Uh, I will say my experiences were more for the warmer <laughs> or let's, let's stick to our fine, yeah. miniature hobby here um uh, ba- first thing i would say if, if people i mean as a for, for tournaments in general is know your army as i think it's really rule number one is take the extra time check what other people play with units that's really important if that gives you that that edge in the battle that can mean losing or winning a game by that extra inch many people are like oh i lost turn five because of something yeah but maybe you during turn four you did something that you could have done and then by turn five that one role wouldn't have decided your faith um and edge and also i find that the more that i learn the more fun i have when i'm playing not necessarily because i think i have a better chance of winning but because i can play with more ease exactly you yes. know one, one thing you know you and i have played together many times and one of the things i enjoy playing with you is that you know the rules so well that there's no stress about, oh, is it this or this or this or this or this? It's it's second nature. When it feels like it's second nature, it feels very natural and easy and therefore more fun. Correct, yeah. And, and it also speeds up the game. Right. Many people complain in the current meta, games getting not getting finished, turn, finishing turn, turn three, four. I play a battle company, which is probably one of the most miniature-rich armies right now, and I finish all my games. It's my movement phases. My deployment is really quick. Many people are like, oh, Battle Comedy will take a lot. No, my deployment is like five minutes because I put down five tanks and put a miniature on top and say, this is in reserves. Already have my units sorted out of my movement tray, which is like one, two, three, four drop pods. And all I got to decide now is, do I put my characters in the sisters? Do I split them up? Do I put them in the top pod? Right, right. Cool. So that is that extra knowing your yeah. army. What else? The missions. Many yeah. people don't take the time to read about the missions maybe before and tailoring your army a little bit to it. Uh, LVO has that one mission that's very hard for a lot of um, MSU armies that have a lot of units with um, round three kill points. 
that is a very hard mission if you play Battle Company or so. So then knowing your tertiary missions, because you will most probably lose primary on kill points, you need to win Maelstrom. So you need to still be able on the board to hold it, but you got to know what your tertiary missions is because that is what will decide the game. So knowing that there is linebacker, Slater, Warlord, you really know, all right, I got to protect my Warlord. I got to do this. I got to do that. And mm-hmm. I got to not get him to do it. So that's really important. Because those extra points can make all the difference at the end of the game, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yes, yes. And um, going with that is you should know your plan, stick to it. If you have an idea pre-tournament, think about what you want to do and then try to do that because that's also when you get away from that idea is when you start then not coming back to your game plate. Then, and then you give it up. Mm-hmm. It's like in tennis, when once you get out or in any kind of sport, once you get off your game and the enemy gets you on the wrong foot, it's really hard to get back. Right, right. And the third thing is have fun. I think these tournaments, and I really encourage people to go out, try tournaments. Yes, you might go have a tournament Nazi in turn one, or maybe turn two that goes for the win, that will try everything to win. There's a lot of people that right now try to change maybe lists between game, roll dice behind buildings where you can see it, or roll when you just look away and are like, yeah, I got two sixes. And there are people like this, but you will find it everywhere. And I think it shouldn't discourage you from going to tournaments. Also, bring bring your lists that you like. Don't try to bring hard meta tournament lists. Because unless you really want to go for that first place, play something that you like. Because the more people bring something that they like, the more fun these tournaments will be again. Alex, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's something that we don't talk about often. Unless you've been at it long enough to really be in the running for the top 10, for those top tables then maybe it's up to us, up to the 40k community, to kind of self-balance the game. Meaning, maybe we don't need to be taking those top table lists if they're if we're not good enough really to play them as well as the folks at the top table, right? And it's not up to the company to make this game balance, but it's also a little bit up to us. So mm, there's tournaments where yeah. I want to go to win, where I tag my battle company, and I will play. I will not try to win by every mean, but I will play to win. Right. And there's games where I bring lists that are thrown together, different units, I try formations that nobody else plays, and I have fun. The side effect of which could be more people having more fun at tournaments if they're not regularly across the table from a total smash-face-death-star-bombastic list. Yes, exactly. And I think that's a big thing that people should remember in those tournaments is get the names of the other people, take their Facebook, their emails, their Twitter, stay in touch that's what makes this hobby great. And when you travel to their cities, hit them up or invite them when there's a small local tournament. We had another guy for an Apple game that we had here in Philadelphia that came all the way from Canada. Yeah. And that's really what makes our hobby is connect with the people. Don't try to decide it over the game, but decide it over a drink after for those of you who drink, which is probably most of you, but of a burger, a water, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> an ice cream, a Snickers yeah. after that game. Yeah, those connections are important. Exactly. Yeah, Stay sure. in touch. Okay, I did think of a legit one to kind of build off that <laughs> is remember to eat during all of your games because, you know, three games of 40K in a row is pretty grueling, mm-hmm. especially if you're going over and you're playing into the, you know, bring food, <laughs> yeah, healthy food. Yeah. It takes a lot of physical stamina to stand still for an entire day on your feet on a convention room floor. Yeah, yes. sit down. I mean, yeah, sit you, down. You have a chair. Most right, of TOs provide it. chairs. You use, use it. it. <laughs> I take off my shoes when I play. Yeah. I have two pairs of socks on to get that other softness under my bounce. feet. Yeah, that ever bouncy. <laughs> and be like, oh, yeah, feels fresh. I get to the table. I take off my shoes. I sit down. I'm like, let's have fun. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Two pairs of socks and take off your shoes. <laughs> 
and welcome back to The Chosen. This is where we talk about something related to the hobby that has got our attention, be it a book, a hobby aid, a model, a dollar store find that is just amazing. I found, uh, mine is, I found these uh, dollar store butter dishes that are going to make a great defense line someday. They're clear, but as soon as I prime them black and paint them and make them look all rusty and weird, they're going to make a great defense line. Nice, there we go. That's yeah. the spirit. The dollar store is a it's a cornucopia of cheap terrain delights I'm finding. Yeah. TJ, how about you? What's your pick for the chosen? Probably Praetorian of Dorne. It's the book I've been reading the most lately. Um I don't know what number it is for Horse Heresy, but it gives you a really good look at the Alpha Legion. Mm. Um you could probably just skip over the Imperial Fist parts. We know they aren't fun. I, I will argue with that. <laughs> Are you reading the heresy novels in order? No. I'm jumping around to get all the legions I like and avoiding the Imperial Fists. So you're picking and choosing throughout? Yes. Cool. Alex, how about you? What's your pick? One of the last books I also read for the Horace Heresy, it's called Pharos, The Dying of a Light. Oh, yeah. 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 I really liked that book. It gave a little bit insight about how Imperium Secundos worked yeah. after the Horace Heresy breakout. And uh, it also gave an insight of maybe what the whole 40K might look a little bit like because the whole idea in that book is there's a mountain, the Mount Pharos on a planet, and the um, Imperium Secundus, which is controlled by the Imperial Fists, Ultramarines, about all, and um, a renegade, I mean renegade from the renegade, so he's a good guy, uh, Ironsmith from the Iron Hands, and uh, he and um, Captain Pollux from the Imperial Fists are good friends. And the, the whole story is about a mechanism that mountain has, a sort of space and time travel to communicate between planets. So the whole way how Imperium Secundus is actually connected and it's not falling apart is because Mount Ferris has a device somehow that makes instant communication through an interstellar space available going so far that the machine is controlled by your imagination. Hmm. So the idea is the stronger you think about a place the more realistic it will be. And if in that place, then let's say on the opposite side, somebody will be, he will see that in real space, sort of distortion in space and will see you through this bridge, sort of. And it went so far in that book that um, when they got conquered by um, the Night Lords, he had such a strong imagination of actually where he wanted to go that he could physically just walk through this invisible wall and suddenly be on the bridge of a battle barge huh. that he wanted to be. And so, but it's not—it's not a webway portal. It's not a webway portal. Yeah. It, it was—it doesn't say or hints at who might have invented this, who came up with it. Might have been the old ones. Might have been the elder. Might have been the Necrons. Might have been something previous through or whatever. Um, but it was the first time that there was a different way of traveling through the galaxy that wasn't a webway, that wasn't warp travel, and the need of Galafields. And also an option to communicate without the Astronomicon. I mean, this whole 40K story right, right now is going about what if the Emperor finally dies? What if the Astronomicon would go on? Yeah, no Astronomicon. Yeah. Exactly. The Emperor right. might fall apart. But with GW putting some new stuff in here, this was already a story about how this might be possible and mm. how there might be some options. So that's why I like this book. So that might be a glimmer of what's to come in the maybe, narrative. Maybe. Or question. You said the device used imagination. Yeah. So how, how did how did the Imperial Fists and the Ultramarines use it then? Oh, they, the they, they had a very imaginative. Uh, <laughs> they couldn't. They they almost couldn't. That's that's why they had a renegade Iron Hand uh, warpsmith there, who because of how he was shattered from his legion and shattered in body, actually already had dropped this strict training from the Adeptus Astartes, 
and was already a little bit more free-minded to actually be able. And then the night lords came and they don't give a anything about anything right. anyway. Right. So they're already completely intro. I want to do whatever I want to do. And he was so obsessed with it. He want that battle barge that he want that spaceship that he just pictured like it would be in front of him. And suddenly it was. And, and he, he manifested it. Yeah, Just wow. manifested it. So he could just walk through a bridge and, and on the other side. That was episode three of Crew Shaken. We took a look at the 2017 Las Vegas Open. Heard from Alex, who was there as a competitor, who finished very nicely indeed. And TJ, who was there as a volunteer. We talked about some of the things they did out there and some of the lessons that they learned. And in The Chosen, Alex and TJ recommended some of the Black Library novels for us to check out. I thought it was terrific. I can't thank you both enough for joining me. And I thank you, our listeners, for listening. If you liked what you heard, do check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash crewshaken. And leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you downloaded this podcast. Thanks for listening. For Crew Shaken, I've been Tim. I'm TJ. And Alex. Alex.